Today, we'd like to continue from where we left off yesterday. We'd like to further discuss this point of there being many, many different forms and techniques which are all called Buddhism. As we mentioned yesterday, at the heart of all of these different forms, there is the basic essential Buddhism, which is seeing things as they really are, seeing those things that we need to see. This is the essential core or heart of Buddhism. And we discussed how all the many different forms of Buddhism that have occurred in different cultures and countries have led to quite a few superficial differences. But nonetheless, the essence is the same. There are all these different externals or surface differences. For example, generally the technique for calming the mind and clearing the mind, these may be quite different in the different systems or schools. For example, some, some people, in order to calm down the mind and concentrate the mind, will repeat, repeat a few syllables to themselves regularly, such as Bhutto, 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 or Arahan, 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 which means enlightened being. Other systems, we work with the breath, and by establishing mindfulness upon the breath, the mind is calmed and concentrated. There are many different techniques of developing concentration or samadhi and often in this which is the, the basic step or the beginning, the necessary preparation for seeing things as they are. So in the different methods we will find in the different schools, we will find a variety of methods for establishing this samadhi. But once again, it all comes down to the same thing in preparing the mind in order to see things as they really are, to see those things that we need to see. So there are these different techniques. Some of them are are quite simple, some are more difficult. Some may suit certain personalities and not others. The main thing we need to know is to not attach too much importance to the, the details of a specific technique because these are only tools. For example, if we get too attached to puto, 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 or some mantra, then we will we'll lose track of the actual purpose of using this puto, puto, or mantra, or whatever. 
when in fact there is no sacred or magic sound being uttered. We could use any kind of sound. For example, if you like Pepsi-Cola or Coca-Cola, you could say to yourself, Pepsi, 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 or Coca-Cola, 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 over and over until the mind is concentrated using this technique. It's not the sacredness or magical quality of the word or sound. It's just the technique. And mindfulness of breathing is another way of calming and concentrating the mind. But once again, we only do this, or we're doing this, to enable the mind to see. Because once the mind is samadhi, once it is concentrated, then we will automatically see into the nature of things. We will see anicca, impermanence, sukha, unsatisfactoriness, and anatta, the not-self of all phenomena and all noamana. So don't, don't get lost in the surface um, dissimilarities. Always remember that the essential core is the same within all these practices, schools, and forms of Buddhism. When we discuss these various ways of developing samadhi, concentration, of calming and clearing the mind, which is the basic starting point in any school or tradition, we also need to point out that within these different ways of developing samadhi, there are also different levels on which this can be done. For example, there are some, some techniques for developing samadhi or a calm, clear mind that are, are, are basic techniques but will not achieve a complete level of samadhi. This means that this technique will is a good way to get started, or it may be a good way to get started, but it will not, it cannot develop the mind to a complete level of samadhi. So there it's kind of there are certain techniques which are beginning stages. For example, the four Brahma Viharas or divine abodes, which you may have heard about metta, friendliness, karuna, compassion, mudita, sympathetic joy, and ubeka, equanimity. These four divine abodes are one very useful way of developing a basic level of samadhi. We can use these to calm the mind and quiet the mind and make the mind at ease. This can be very useful when the mind is agitated. And it's, it's very useful for freeing the mind from fear. The so-called meditations on metta and on friendliness or loving-kindness. These can be very good on freeing the mind 
from fear. However, these, this way of developing concentration will only go part way. It will not develop a full degree of concentration. This doesn't mean that these are not Buddhism or that they're not useful techniques. We just need to realize that there are certain objects of meditation which will, will work with only a certain range or aspect of mental development, such as these four Brahma-viharas, the divine abodes, which are useful as a preliminary stage for developing a basic foundation for the mind's further development. But that's as far as some techniques will go. And then we need to use another meditation object after that in order to, to develop the mind further. Nonetheless, these are all Buddhist meditation. These are all useful in reaching, in developing the mind to the realization of things as they really are. Certain things won't, like, for example, once again, these Brahma-viharas, they are useful for an, the beginning steps of samadhi. They are, however, not useful for insight. There will be no insight occurring during, say, a meditation on metta. There will, in doing this, there is no penetration into the reality of impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and not-self. So we need to be clear on what the various meditation objects can be used for, and so that we use them properly and also are aware of their limitations. These meditations on the divine abodes, metta and garuna, for example, we need to be aware that in these kind of so-called meditations or reflections or contemplations, that there is still an idea of an I or a self that is sharing or spreading metta, friendliness, towards other selves, other beings, other entities. The same with garuna, compassion. In these kind of meditations, we are still very much caught up in the sense of self and other. And so this is one of the limitations of these kind of meditation objects. This, these meditations on the, the, the divine abodes is something that was taught way before the Buddha's time. And then they have been absorbed into the, British, the Buddhist tradition because they are quite useful. These are called the divine abodes or the Brahma abode, because in practicing them, they will take one 
to the Brahma world or the Brahma realm. The Brahma realm is a state in which the mind is no longer caught up in coarse material existence where the mind is no longer chasing after sensual pleasures. In the Brahma world, the mind has transcended this and it is a state that is much more refined. And so through practicing the divine abode, metta, garona, ube, mudita, and ubeka, then the mind can realize these, these Brahma worlds or Brahma realms. And so this has been taught for a long, long time, and it's very useful. It helps the mind to calm down. It makes the mind peaceful. The mind is in a state like this is not afraid. It also develops a, a kind of friendliness, a, a sense of sharing with other, other beings, which is useful in lessening selfishness. But nonetheless, in spite of these benefits, it is still caught up in a self a self that is sharing this friendliness or love, and a self that goes to the Brahma world. And so, this is limited in its ability to free the mind of all attachment to self. Nonetheless, it's useful and valuable, but it should not be mistaken as the ultimate goal, the final goal, or the essence of Buddhism. It's, it's useful, and it, it contributes, and we should understand it in that way. You just mentioned the final goal. We'd like to go into this a bit further. Before the Buddha appeared in India 2,600 years ago, or thereabouts. The highest goal that people could conceive of was to, to go to the Brahma world, to these very lofty, wonderful heavens in some future existence. This was the, the conception of the final goal before the Buddha appeared. And so there were many different techniques and teachings which were designed to help people to realize this goal of, of going to the Brahma world. This was the destination they had chosen. But once the Buddha appeared, then there was the understanding and teaching of the final goal, which is Nibbana. The Buddha did not say that the final goal was some very exalted and refined existence in a future life. The final goal as taught by the Buddha was Nibbana. And so these are, there arose this distinction between a very highly refined and pure existence in the Brahma world or the destination that is Nibbana. So we can use this as a way to discriminate 
what is a Buddhist teaching and what is not. In the conception of the Brahma world as the final goal, then there is always a self, some soul, Atman or Atta, which is developed, purified, until it becomes as good as it can be, until it becomes the, the best kind of self or soul there can be. And so there are techniques that are all aimed at developing this self or soul in purifying it so that it may reach the Brahma world. But in the Buddhist teaching, what we have is the goal of Nibbana, which is the, the end of the self. Before the Buddha, they were teaching the highest, purest self or soul. But then the Buddha was teaching that the highest development, the real true final goal, is the extinction of self the extinction of this illusion and belief in an eye. And so this is where we, we have a very clear distinction between different teachings and practices. Does it aim at a highly refined self or does it aim at the, the end of the self to the abandoning of all attachment two things as I or mine. If we understand this distinction, then we can use it to, to, dis, to distinguish between the various spiritual practices we have going in the world these days and see which are, are Buddhist and which are not. The Buddhist practices aim at the abandoning of the self, of transcending this, this self or soul. We've spoken about some differences in the practice in the development of samadhi. And now we'll move on to vipassana. There are a variety of different techniques and methods which are claim to be vipassana. There are many of them in Thailand and many coming from Burma as well. I'd like to say something about a technique which originated in Burma and is therefore in Thailand called the Burmese method. Many of you have maybe practiced this. It was originally taught by Mahasi Sayadaw. This is a technique which in Thailand involves a noting of phenomena. And in Thailand they use the syllable na at the end of every note. So if there's seeing na or see na, see na, walk na, walk na, in na, out na, rise na, fall na, like this. This na is very difficult to translate into English. We've been trying to figure out a proper way and haven't quite come across it. But in, in Thailand, this, this gnaw 
is used very often. And it can lead to certain problems if it's misunderstood. And this happens even when we note in a European language. If this noting is incorrect, this will not be vipassana. So if our noting is, say, in or breathing in, breathing out, but what we're thinking really is, I am breathing in, I am breathing out, or my abdomen is rising, my abdomen is falling, or I am walking, I am sitting, I am eating. If our noting involves the sense, the sense or feeling of I, I am doing this, I am doing that, or mine, then this noting is wrong. We could say actually that it's, it's stupid. If the noting that is happening involves a sense or concept of I, then this is not vipassana and it is not Buddhism. So we need to be very careful with this na, na, or the, the noting if we are using this technique. There is the stupid gnaw, or the, the foolish way of noting, which reinforces the illusion of an I, of a self. And this we need to avoid. But on the other hand, there we can use the gnaw in a, a wise way. We can note properly. And if the noting is correct, then it is true vipassana. So the correct kind of noting or gnaw, gnaw, is to, to note there is breathing in, breathing out, rising, falling, lifting, um, placing, whatever the noting is, to note just the activity, the activity of breathing in, just this natural process, this natural activity, which is neither a self or belongs to any self. So the noting to be correct must be noting of just a pure natural activity without any concept or feeling or illusion of I or mind. If the noting is of this nature, just noting the, the natural process of breathing in, the natural process of breathing out, the, the natural functioning of the foot lifting, um, striding forward and coming down. All of these, if noted as just a natural process, completely void, completely lacking of any eye or mind, then it is correct. And then we can properly call it vipassana. And then it is Buddhist. So you can, you can tell right here in your meditation practice if you're using this technique of noting. Are you noting in terms of an I or self? Or is there just noting of natural phenomena in which there is no I whatsoever? The first kind of noting is foolish and incorrect. And if you call that vipassana, you're just fooling yourself. But 
if the noting is involves no concept of I, then it can be properly called vipassana. The one kind of noting reinforces the illusion of a self. The second correct kind of noting will weaken and destroy the concept of self. It will get rid of this illusion. The first way is not Buddhist. The second way is. So you can, you should know this difference in order that the use of this technique is done properly in order to, to make progress towards the final goal of Buddhism. So, we've been trying to make it clear that the heart of Buddhism is in the elimination of the self-concept, or what we could, we could say, use the word egoism, which is a word familiar to most of you. Buddhism has as its goal the elimination of egoism, and for anything to be rightly called Buddhist, it must it must be helping to develop in this direction. We'd like to mention that this thing called egoism itself has different levels or degrees. We'll mention three of them. The first is a very subtle level of egoism that in our normal existence does not seem to cause any problems. We do not notice any suffering or pain coming out of this most subtle level of egoism, which is not really egoism as a full-blown concept in the mind, but is a tendency dormant within the mind to behave egoistically. And then this is very often triggered. But at the point where it is it's still more of a tendency than in a functioning concept or thought. It does not cause any obvious problems, and so we often don't worry much about it. But then through interaction with life or through the experience of life, there will come certain stimuli and this, the egoism Will, will grow or strengthen. And then we can talk about it, the second level or degree of egoism, which is where there is a, a feeling or sense of I, some I, some self, some ego entity that we identify with in the body, in the mind, or in some object. This begins to cause problems but still the so-called normal human being functions with this concept of I quite regularly. And so people can get along normally with this, with this concept of I. But this is, this is the second level of egoism. Now, if this egoism is, not, is allowed to get completely out of control, to the degree that it becomes almost a kind of insanity or a neurosis or, or even worse. This comes to the third degree of egoism, 
The Thai language is very nice in that they have a variety of pronouns for the first person. But in English we only have I. And so it's hard to make this distinction. In Thai there is a polite word for I. Chan. Which is the second degree. And then there are some very crude words for I. One of which is Gu. Gu is a very, very tight, grasping, kind of arrogant, coarse level of I. We could call it um, obsessive I or insane, crazy I. It is an I that is really is wrapped up in itself in a really obsessive way. This is the third degree of I. When egoism reaches this third degree of obsessive I, then it causes all kinds of problems and is sending people to, to psychologists, psychiatrists, mental hospitals, and to taking lots of pills and drugs. So this, everyone is aware, is a, a great problem. The second level causes problems, but we consider these problems normal. The dukkha that happens because of this, of the refined eye, we consider to be normal and so we put up with them. And then the, the problems in dukkha of the, the most subtle and refined level of egoism, where the, the sense of I is not full-fledged or complete, that we often don't even notice, but it nonetheless does create dukkha. If we, if we look closely enough, we will realize this. In the Thai language, it, it's got some advantages over English. For example, there are many, many pronouns for the, for the first person, or for I, for me. The one that is most refined and polite is Kapajau, which means servant of the Lord, or is equivalent to your servant, which used to be used in English, but doesn't happen very often. This is a very subtle level of egoism, where one addresses oneself as the servant of the Lord. There is only a very small level of egoism. A more advanced degree of egoism would be the pronoun we. Sometimes we we can use the word we instead of I. This is still the egoism isn't very strong. But then when we, we use the word I or in Thai Chan, which is a refined, polite I, the, I, the egoism is strengthening. And then there is the really crude I of Gu, Gu, which is really a, a quite coarse and crude word which doesn't sound very good to Thai ears. So in Thai there are these, we can express these levels of egoism much more easily than in English, though we can, we can try to. So we're pointing out that these degrees of egoism, because the goal of Buddhism is to eliminate, to remove any level of egoism that exists. 
there are various things going on in the world which may be called Buddhism or, or go under some other name. And we need to see whether it is these practices and techniques and teachings will be useful in the removal of egoism. If something just supports and reinforces egoism, then it is not Buddhism. But anything that helps to lessen, weaken, remove and eliminate egoism, that is Buddhism. Now, at this point, you may not understand clearly these different levels of egoism which we have mentioned. But if you just now start with whatever understanding of egoism you have, just take the usual everyday definition of egoism and work to eliminate this. Get rid of this. It, it does no good. Quit cluttering up your life with this egoism. And then you will be practicing Buddhism correctly. But if you just develop and support this egoistic feeling in some way, then that is not Buddhism or meditation proper. If we're going to remove this thing, egoism, then of course we have to take a look at the ego. What is the ego? You really know what, what this ego is that you are claiming to have or to own, which we, we have been taught to believe in. What is the ego? If you really examine it, you'll find that the ego is nothing but the result of not knowing, of misunderstanding, of ignorance. Because of not understanding things as they are, we come up with this concept, this belief in an ego, and we cling to this. But it's nothing but the result of ignorance. This means that the ego is really only an illusion. There is no true thing that we can call an ego. It is merely an illusion of the confused, ignorant mind. So this is what the ego is. And if, <clears throat> for an example that we like to use to, to show how this ego arises and which shows its elusive nature is a child is walking out near a chair and bumps into the chair. And bumping into the chair, this hurts the, the child's leg. And in anger, the child turns and kicks the chair. This is an example of how ignorance conditions the ego. The, because of the child's lack of intelligence, it, it makes the assumption that the chair somehow has an ego. And the child itself has an ego that is angry. It projects an ego upon the chair and then focuses its anger upon that chair. So there is, in reality, there's just a, some physical processes going on, but, and then this mental ignorance gets involved and conditions the idea of an ego. The ego, one ego gets angry, and gets and looks for another ego 
to project that anger upon. This is purely the conditioning of ignorance, and none of this ego has any true existence. So we need to examine and understand this elusive character, elusive nature of the ego. It doesn't really exist. It's just an illusion we carry around. Many of us, this ego, we identify with, with life. We're all aware that there is, there is life. There is some, there is life going on. And then we identify with that life itself as the ego. We take the ego to be life or life to be the ego. This is just an illusion. Although that life exists, it has no meaning that can be attributed to an ego. Life is just a natural process that is impermanent and unsatisfactory. And in this we can find nothing that we can call an ego, which we can attach to as, as ourselves. So through attaching to ego as life, or attaching to life, to clinging to life as, as ego, then we create many, many problems for ourselves, and these problems we call sukha. So the goal of Buddhism is to remove any of this belief in an ego. There is life, but we no longer give any egoistic meaning to life. We don't cling to it. There is just life following its, its natural processes, but there is no longer any attachment to it as ego. ego. This is the goal of Buddhism, to lessen, weaken, and remove and eventually eliminate this attachment to things as ego. It's a very important word that we would like to discuss now, and we will, we will use the Pali of this word, because it, depending on one's understanding it can be translated in different ways. The Pali word is vijnana, vijnana, or in Thai it's pronounced vijnan. And it's given different meanings by different people. Vijnana in Buddhism can be translated as consciousness, whereas outside of Buddhism, vijnana will often be translated as soul. In the proper understanding of vijnana, vijnana is merely a basic level of sense consciousness. That means when, when there is some visual activity, it is the basic knowing, the basic sensory knowing of that activity or basic sense consciousness. This is all that vijnana is. Consciousness of seeing, consciousness of hearing, consciousness of smelling, of tasting, of touching, of thinking. Any activity at one of the six sense doors, the basic level of knowing of that, the basic awareness of that is vijnana. 
But before the Buddha's time, this, they still had a concept of vijnana, but it was not the one I just explained. Previous to the Buddha, people had an idea that there was a soul, some vijnana somewhere within the body or mind. And when there was some seeing going on, the soul would run to the eye, or it would run to the ear, or run to the, to the nose or the tongue, or whatever. And the soul was running from one sense door to another. And it was believed that there was this soul. This was in pre-Buddhist Indian thought, and still it is part of Hindu thought to this time, that there is a, a soul going from sense door to sense door. By the way, this was also is very close to conceptions that Europeans held in the Middle Ages, or maybe even up till a couple hundred years ago, of some soul that was running from one sense to another. Further, this vijnana, in this, this understanding as a soul, when the body dies, that vijnana will, will last, and it will carry on and take up another body. And then it will be bouncing around within that body, getting involved in the various sense activities. This understanding of vijnana in terms of a soul is not a Buddhist understanding. And so we want you to be very clear on this distinction between vijnana that would be translated as soul and vijnana which we could translate as consciousness, just a natural process of awareness regarding the sense activity. So please understand this difference clearly. The, the latter is Buddhist. Before Thailand was a Buddhist country, it received, had already received a lot of religious teachings from India. And so Thailand received Hindu or Brahmanistic teachings from India before Buddhism came to this country. And so there is a mixture of, in many places, of old Hindu beliefs with Buddhist And, for example, many, many Thais believe in a, a vijnana or vinyan, which is a soul. I myself, when I was a, a small child growing up in Thailand, when I was a little boy, I was taught this as well. All the older people had, had learned this, and then they taught it to children. So as a young child growing up here, I was taught about a soul or vinyan. For example, that would, would die, when the body dies, this, this soul would be born in some other realm, some other world, some other body, or something like that. Or for example, we believe, we were taught that this soul, when, when a person slept at night, the soul would leave the body and go walking, wandering around, go traveling around. And so we were told that never do anything to disturb a sleeping person. And like, don't, 
go and put paint or makeup on their face so that when the, the vijnana comes back, it wouldn't recognize the body. And then it, it might not go back in the body and the person would die. A lot of beliefs like this were taught to us as children. And so, even in a Buddhist country, or in a nominally Buddhist country, we are taught all kinds of things like this. And this idea of some, some soul, or vinyan, that I was taught as a child, is not Buddhism. But when, and so it was very difficult me, for me in the beginning to understand this Buddhist teaching of not-self, that the vijnan is not a soul, but it is just consciousness and nothing more, and that that consciousness is not anything egoistic or selfish. And so many of us have some sort of background which encourages us to believe in a soul or spirit. How you, how you have been raised and conditioned, you will know for yourself. And, but for most of us, this belief, this conditioning that there is an, a soul, a vijnana that can leave the body at night and travel around, that can become a ghost, that can be reborn in heaven or in some high, higher heaven, or that will transmigrate from body to body. All these things are not Buddhism. But if we have been taught in this way, it can be very, very difficult for us to understand the teaching of not-self. This word vijnana, which we can call soul, or the, the one understanding of vijnana, which can be soul, spirit, atman, atta, the I, the self, the ego. There are many, many words for this thing, but none of these are correct or are something that is true or real. Now, all of the Buddhist teachings are aimed at merely or specifically at the removal of all these thoughts, ideas, feelings, and beliefs in a soul an I, an ego. This is what Buddhism is about. Anything that is encouraging the ego and egoism is not Buddhism. The techniques <clears throat> which we can use to remove and eliminate the ego and egoism are many. And there is much detail to go into about these different techniques which we will not have time to do today, and we'll have to leave that for later. I'd just like to summarize with the fact that the ego, or, or any of these words, the soul, whichever you prefer, the ego is nothing but a reaction of a, the mind that is ignorant. It's just the, an ignorant reaction towards life. And because of this ignorance, there arises the concept or feeling of ego. But it is nothing more than this ignorant reaction. Life is taken to be the ego, or ego is considered to be life. This has no reality whatsoever.
Sometimes life we, we take as we call life. Other times we can see, understand life as the, the compound of body and mind. Other times we talk about life as the five khandas, the five groups of body, feelings, perceptions, thought, and consciousness. But sometimes we talk about life as the six sense fields, the six sense doors of eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, and mind. Whatever way we, we approach life or we analyze life, if we do so clearly with genuine insight, we will see that there is no ego involved in life. Life is not ego. There's no ego within it or in any way related to life, no matter how we analyze it. So this is what Buddhism is about, to remove any thought or idea of, of ego, to remove this ignorant reaction to life. And then life becomes cool, enlightened, pure. And this is, this is the mind that has been liberated. Life has been liberated from the prison of life by the removal of this ignorant reaction toward life. Removing the ego is the essence of Buddhism. This is the liberation of life. So we will end today on this point.